you so much for joining us for episode 13 of season four of our Revise and Resubmit podcast. I'm Dr. Kim Bissell, the Southern Progress Endowed Professor in Magazine Journalism and the Associate Dean for Research in the College of Communication and Information Sciences. Let me just tell you guys, this past week has been a lot. We've had so much going on in the college. We've had so many people in and out for different events. It was honors week. And unfortunately, we had some scheduling conflicts with the guests we had lined up. So even better, we're going to be returning to one of our great conversations from season three, where we catch up with Dr. Mike Devlin, who's an assistant professor at Texas State University. I know we talk a lot about sports, and you're going to hear that again in this episode, but this is a great one, so we hope that you tune in. We will have a new episode to air for you one week from today. Don't miss it. everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today for episode 15 of season three of Revise and Resubmit. I'm Dr. Kim Bissell, the Southern Progress Endowed Professor in Magazine Journalism and the Associate Dean for Research in the College of Communication and Information Sciences at the University of Alabama. And I'm Dr. Annalisa Bowen, an Assistant Professor in the Department of Communication Studies at the University of Alabama, and we both work in the Institute for Communication and Information Research, or the ICIR, at UA. Today's episode marks the last episode for Season 3 of Revise and Resubmit, and we've been sitting on this one for several weeks because it's the perfect way to wrap up all of our conversations this fall with PhD alum from CNIS. And I think the very first response I have to make is Roll Tide. Roll Tide. Roll Tide to another excellent season of Revise and Resubmit. Roll Tide to our alumni who graciously agreed to be guests on our podcast. And I mean, I don't even have to say it, but Roll Tide to UA Athletics. And that last shout out is related to our episode today. Today's episode is a bookend of sorts because we catch up with Dr. Mike Devlin, an assistant professor in the School of Journalism and Communication at Texas State University. And he just so happens to be the spouse of Dr. Natalie Brown Devlin, who is our guest for episode one of season three. So we've bookended season three with uh, truly great conversations with the two Dr. Devlins. And roll time for that. <laughs> so Annalisa, I feel like we've had this conversation before because we've spoken with Dr. Natalie Devlin and other PhD alum who have told us about their research in sports. But given that we're recording this on the heels of squeaking out a really big win in the Iron Bowl yesterday, everyone get ready. Let's say it again. Roll Tide. Roll Tide. It's a perfect day to talk about sports fans and sports fandom. In college football, the last week has been rivalry week, which means that the biggest rivalry games happened yesterday. And it just so happens that one of the biggest games of the week was the Alabama-Auburn game. Happy to report that both today's guests and all of our other UA superfans survived yesterday's game after squeaking it out in a fourth overtime. So I have to ask, on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being that absurd, crazy sports fan that Mike is going to tell us about, where do you fall on this scale? Huh. Okay. So, uh, like, five. <laughs> And so, okay, so here's my reflection on my own sports fandom. I can't take it. That's my reflection. I just can't. 
So yesterday I stopped watching in the second quarter. The game was being recorded. I mean, I'm not that crazy because I had to stop watching. I had too much anxiety. So I switched over and watched Penn State and Michigan State because it was also a good game. The snow was intriguing to me. And now I want to go <laughs> in person. And because it wasn't my team, I was able to enjoy that rivalry. Now, I kept up with our game on the ESPN app. Somehow reading plays is not as anxiety producing as watching and hearing the plays. And then once the game was over, I went back and restarted watching the game where I left off because I was able to like relax because I knew (laughs) that that might be like absurd and crazy, but it's in maybe a different way than what we talk about. But maybe I need to be part of a research study on absurd Random. Um, so that's where I am. What about you? I would like to say that I'm not an absurd sports fan, but I think probably in retrospect, I am pretty <laughs> high on the scale. I have all the gear, the t-shirts, the long sleeves, the hoodies, the pins, all the things. And there's a lot of yelling on some game days. And at times my neighbors may think I'm in danger because all of the yelling that's going on. But with that being said, I'm a super fan of all sports. I watch it all. I cheer for it all. And sometimes I just have to yell at the TV. And here's the other absurd thing that's not absurd at all. Sports and fandom can be researched. Yes. As several of our guests do. That's what they do. They research sports and they research sports fans. Not like the ESPN stats in the game, but like fandom. It can be researched, which I think is like really cool. So cool. And for all the sports fans out there who want to stay in sports for a living, but not like on the court or the field, you could be a sports researcher. And our next guest is one such sports researcher. And today he's going to break it all down in terms of how this fandom factors into our enjoyment of the sports that we watch. Are we born this way? Are we bred this way? How did we get to be this way? Dr. Mike Devlin has all the answers. Well, most of the answers, because there are still so many questions out there to get at. And we had so much fun uh, with today's guest, and we hope you will stay tuned in to hear this one. Please join us in welcoming Dr. Mike Devlin. Thanks so much for joining us today, Mike. We are thrilled to be able to catch up with you. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It was uh, was so honored that you guys asked if I'd be a part of this. So thank you. So, Mike, um, there is a little bit of, we'll call it an elephant in the room, and I don't mean Big Al, but (laughs) I put this out there. Earlier in our season, we talked to your fabulous wife. And now we are getting you, the other half of an amazing CNIS PhD alum superstar research squad. So, <laughs> yeah, um, we know we heard a little bit about your kiddos, and I want to know: Are you raising them to you <laughs> in the family business of uh, research, and are they doing data analysis work yet? They are definitely uh, little researchers. They're, they ask a lot of questions. Uh, they're, they're definitely about to be four, and they're in the why stage, which is you know important for every researcher. Everything is, why are we doing this, and why did this happen? Um, so that's part of the family business. And then, of course, we're teaching them to be Alabama fans. Um, yeah. It helps that we're in the middle of you know, football season, and they, they recognize when Alabama's on, and they know to say roll tide. So uh, you know, I think we're definitely getting them in the right direction. <laughs> That's good to hear. And I think we can continue our conversation now. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> uh, we, we couldn't let that one go. Um, so we are in what we call the rapid fire section of the podcast, where we learn a little bit more about who you are, where you're from, and what you do. So I'm going to let Annalisa kick this off. So thank you. All right, Mike, uh, when were you at the University of Alabama? Um, I was there for my doctoral program 2010 to 2013. And backing up just a little bit, where are you from or where were you raised? Um, I'm kind of from uh, all over. I lived in a group in New Mexico, and then I did uh, my undergrad at Texas Tech in Lubbock. Uh, then I spent some time living and working in Austin. Um, and then eventually I found my way to Alabama for the PhD program. And where are you now? We are now living just outside of Austin, Texas. Awesome. All right. So I have to ask, what did the young Mike think he would be doing when he grew up? Um, I thought I would be working in Hollywood being a famous uh, director and uh, writer. Um, you know, my mom was in the arts. My dad was an engineer. Uh, my mom, you know, took uh, a lot of time after school with us and she would do improv activities and was always a big proponent of the arts. And that's what I wanted to do uh, when it came time to go to college. Um, I wanted to major in theater, and my dad's quote was, son, I'm not paying for you to go be a hippie like your mom. You can get a degree in science or math. Um, and so we settled on uh, on news journalism because there was value there, and that's where I kind of started focusing on uh, production. Nice. <laughs> okay, so uh, let's get into some of the scholarship um, that you're doing. I think that you, you've given us a nice uh, little bit about your background. What um, can you give us an elevator pitch on some of your research and your scholarship? Yeah, uh, really. I examine how salient social identities, uh, namely team and fan identities, uh, how they influence a variety of consumer behaviors. Um, more recently, I started looking at the role that personality plays into how we become sports fans. And how those also influence some of those fan-related behaviors. Um, so, you know, it's not necessarily what happens to sports fans and why do they act that way, but looking at the precursor of, is there something that turns us into sports fans? Are more some people more likely to be a sports fan than others based on their personality traits? Okay, so like 29 follow-up questions just based on that great elevator pitch. Um so based on what you just said, I'm gonna put the journalist in you on the spot. Do you want to come up with a headline for one of your most interesting findings, especially if it relates to what makes us sports fans? What would that headline be? Oh, uh, not all sports fans are absurd. Some are just born that way. Ah, not- <laughs> right. I was about to say, like, are, are you taking volunteers for your studies? Because I would like to I would like to know why I'm a sports fan now. And I want to I want to know how that happened. OK, so tell us a little bit more. Um, Tell us a little, tell us a little bit more. Um, yeah, so you know, we started out of looking at are there certain things that are that draw us to want to be sports fans. You know, a lot of the the initial and early work by Daniel Wan that looked at you know social identity and team identity, um, it kind of said that you know some people want to be part of a group and that's why they become sports fans. Um, and my question was, well, why do some people want to be part of a group? You know, there's a big difference between wanting to be part of a book club compared to wanting to be in a stadium full of 100,000 screaming people um, where you know you're going to be sad. You know, there's a, there's a chance you're going to be sad at the end of the day. Um, there's a little bit of, you know, there, there's something sort of unsettling about willingly, you know, willfully exposing yourself to, you know, defeat. Um, so I wanted to start looking at those and then looking uh, subsequently on 
you know, why do some fans, you know, why are some good sports and why are some bad sports? You can all belong to the same team, but, you know, are there certain differences between the way we, we birth or corf? Um, and we started really looking at a lot of these personality traits. And one of the projects that we'll be uh, working on, working and finishing right now and sending out to uh, review, um, it follows that the fans that are really highly into sort of what we, you know, classify as the bad fan behavior, they <laughs> share similar personality traits the dark triad which is what oh. you find with criminals and uh, sociopaths oh my um you know high <laughs> levels of narcissism high levels of machiavellianism um, so um low levels of modesty and so you see some highly identified fans that portray these and then you can start saying okay this is how you know would they're going to act online or how they're going to act in the stadium. So it kind of adds a little bit of color that, Hey, it's not a necessarily fandom. It's not necessarily a social identity, uh, but there is those individual differences that we need to account for. Um, and it's unreeling another layer to uh, this idea of sport fandom. So you might be a really intense sports fan or you might be a criminal. <laughs> and, and hopefully, you know, and we and we going to go back to the media effects. And it's like, well, maybe this is a cathartic thing. Maybe it's good that they have this outlet to vent mm-hmm. because maybe it prevents other other behaviors. But yeah, that's um, that's sort of the the big takeaway. Of course, we're trying to soften that a little bit. We don't want to call sports fans, uh, you know, criminals. But um, it, yeah, it, it does. I think help explain some of the behaviors that we see. So a, a follow-up question, is this something that you're studying in the context of one sport or are you looking at people who are sports fans across football, basketball, NASCAR, wrestling, right. tennis, whatever? You know, we didn't find in my initial research that looked at sports fan personalities, I, I thought there would be a differences between something like golf versus football, you know, your contact versus your, your non-contact sports. And we never found any differences between someone who is a highly identified sport fan. In, we, initially, I compared golf to UFC fans, thinking what could be more contrasting. Um, and there was, there was really was no difference. Now, the level of identification with golf was a lot lower. Like, it was a lot harder to find those identified fans. Um, but in terms of the personality differences, there was no no difference. And that's really what kind of cue that, okay, maybe this is something that we can look broader across sports fans. So a lot of the research that we've done, um, one of the latest studies that Natalie and I worked on looked specifically at football fans. Um, but the for the last four years of the data I've collected, it's you know been taking general populations and then asking them to think of their favorite team and their favorite sport. Um, so letting them put themselves in that space. And it really covers the gamut from basketball, football, uh, you know, soccer and some of your non-contact sports. Okay, so I've got a follow-up here that is kind of methodological, but also I'm just I'm just curious. So I, I would like to think that if I'm out in public um, watching sports of, of any any type, I'm I'm a little bit more well behaved. Um, and at home, I I definitely don't have those boundaries as as much and so I'm thinking like I I don't know because I don't I don't watch a lot of golf but do do fans like watching at home because golf like when you're there I right you're not allowed to like holler and yell and act a fool but at home I could imagine (laughs) that people are hollering yelling acting maybe I'm not going to say acting a fool acting passionate um yeah yeah and saying 
But at UFC, like you're uh, like, ah, get him or kill him or hit him or whatever, whatever you scream. Um, So are you when you're studying this, are you like observing people? Are you asking questions? Are you hooking them up to heart rate monitors? How how do you? Oh, man. Well, I would love to pre COVID. You know, it's funny. We had a lab set up at Texas State and we got funding and equipment and we had about a hundred thousand dollars worth of equipment that was ordered and sitting there ready for some really good um some you know studies to look up um you know some of these responses physiological responses and then COVID happened which completely derailed all of that so Mm -hmm. that is definitely something that is on the on the on the front runner that's coming up once we sort of get this post-pandemic but to answer your question about you know the way we act differently we don't observe that directly, but there are scales that explain why. So what we use is we use the Hexaco personality inventory, which is a um, an offshoot of the big five. Um, mm-hmm. One of the beautiful things about that is it looks at these six larger domains. And there's these 24 underlying personality traits that are really granular in their detail. And one of the things that we really find with sports fans that differs is this level of prudence. And that's sort of that you know when to act um, <laughs> passionately and you know when to sort of act calm. Um, and so when we look at some of the behaviors like burging and corfing, you know, are you more likely to burg? Well, people who low have low levels of prudence are more likely to burg. And those are the people you're going to find that are more passionate in the stance and really don't care what other people think, where you have people who are a high level. You can still be a sports fan, but your personality trait may be really high in prudence, meaning, you know, you are a little more reserved and you can understand what the social environment dictates. Um, so looking at those traits, you start unraveling. And again, it's a great way to look at and detach the the notion that all sports fans act a certain way. And I think that's what a lot of the early work did is sort of grouped all sports fans as a certain, you know, it's a, it's a social identity. But when you look at a fan base, yeah, they may share some characteristics, but within that fan base, you always have the quote unquote good fans and the quote unquote bad fans. And that's where those personalities, those underlying traits really dictate those, uh, where you see those differences in the quote unquote large social grouping. So, I have to ask, because this is just so fascinating, how did you get started doing the research that you're doing now? Um, well, it goes to, I'm going to backtrack just a little bit here to talk about where this all started within grad school. Um, I was initially brought on, um, I met Dr. Brian. I was doing initial work in uh, sort of media effects, and I was following a lot of the work with Bryant uh, and Zillman, and that's what took me to Alabama. Um, and it was there that I was working and looking at media effects and consumer behavior, what happens with those emotions and how that dictates, you know, if you're going to buy. And at that point, I was looking at like movie tickets and, and movie sales, um, you know, how certain trailers, if they evoke a certain emotion, is going to dictate whether or not you buy, um, how your mood influences whether or not you buy. Um, but like all things that happen, uh, life kind of changed because of a girl. Um, it was <laughs> it was when I met Natalie and uh yeah, I was like, oh, this person's very interesting. And I said, well, what do you do? And she said, well, I, I do sports research. And she goes, well, what did you do? And I didn't think media effects sounded very cool. Um, so I told her, I said, oh, well, I also do sports research. And she said, great. Like what? And I was like, um, I, you know, just why, you know, fans buy tickets. So, you know, that was the best thing I could come up with that parallel with what I was working on. Um, and I kid you not, I literally that night went and started looking through the literature to try to find some type of theoretical <laughs> underpinning in case she pressed me again. I didn't look like a total like noob at this. Uh, and I, I literally stumbled into fan identity from Daniel Wansup. And I was like, oh, this seems valid. I like this. So I'm not joking when I say like I literally stumbled into it because I was trying to impress who's now my future wife. Um, 
but I spent time doing it and, you know, you spend, you know, two years, like really involved in it. And, and you know, I, I found it fascinating. I mean, I guess I'm glad that I found that and not something else, but uh, I became fascinated with the, the work. And like I said, I had this inkling when we were about to, when I was about to graduate in 2013, uh, personalities, I'd always been interested in, you know, the psychology and my cognates actually in psychology. Um, so it was, it was there, but, you know, not having sort of the, um, the, the, you know, methodological rigor developed, fully developed and, you know, learning how to still be a researcher. Uh, it was not the time to try to reinvent uh, a whole new field. And so the role with personality, I can honestly say I started looking at this in 2013 and I had a number of rejections. Um, there were a ton of papers that got sent out and a lot of people, there was, there was er uh, errors in it. Um, but it took time of just re-looking at it and really revisiting. And I'd say it really didn't hit until 2016 or 2017 when I finally had, I think, the maturity and the acumen to put it all together. And so we've been slowly working on this personality, chipping away at it since 2018. Um, 2016 was the first like real big data collections I got funding for, uh, where I got a grant to do that. And so it's been you know five years in the making of developing this, this sort of, and I, I wouldn't say theory, but this idea of personality's influence on uh, sports fans. Okay, so, so my question now then is, can can we develop or change our personality? Like I, I'm thinking, I, I read that article one time about if you drink black coffee, you're a sociopath. And I was like, oh <laughs> no. And, and now I'm, I, if I act a certain way, maybe I could either be a sports fan or a criminal. And I know I'm like simplifying that, but right. like, <laughs> is there a way that you can, or have you found, have you looked at, um, Kind of a if if a kid is is displaying some sort of personality, steer them in this way to just be a passionate sports fan or change their personality. Tell tell us a little bit yeah. more about personality. Well, the thing with the personality research, and this is where I think this is what helped me sort of get that validity that advanced it to where um, you know journals like Communication and Sport and International Journal of Sport Com started taking it serious. Um, was that, you know, personality is rather fixed at birth. And there's a lot of research, you know, there was the initial that research about, you know, is it, you know, um, a function of, you know, uh, what is it? I'm drawing a blank here. Um, born, you know, nature versus nurture, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of research says that, no, you're pretty much born with these traits and it's genetics and early learning that really mm -hmm. form these personality traits. Now, what you can do is you can, you know, obviously if you notice some traits with someone who's young, you can hopefully give them outlets to, you know, and, and ways to use them productively. Um, but largely what, who you are is, is largely fixed at birth. Now, that doesn't mean you're always going to be, um, you know, if you, you rank highly in sociability, that doesn't mean you're always going to be social throughout your life. You may enter a period of life where there is an external event that changes, you know, your degree of wanting to be social. Um, but it's always going to be sort of in your innate desire to try to elevate that personality. Or that's always going to be put in there if you're put into a situation of stress we kind of go to our natural instincts. So those personality traits, even if you try to get out of a personality trait or you find one that's undesirable, under certain circumstances, that's what you're naturally going to lean and gravitate towards. And so, I mean, that's why you have a lot of these behavior researchers now that talk about cognitive behavior therapy. And there's a lot of, you know, apps, especially that we saw come to life during the pandemic that were, and they're not necessarily trying to change your behavior. If you actually look at what they're doing, to utilize the aspects in your behavior in an appropriate manner. Mm -hmm. So I have another follow-up question. Mike, you just referenced early learning. 
And when we first got you on the podcast, you had talked about um, your daughters and kind of they were learning all the appropriate things related to football, which is the way that I was raised. And so <laughs> what I'm kind of wondering is, along with personality issues, what have you found in terms of environmental factors? Because I think like my sports fandom is definitely linked to my personality, but I also tie it back to environmental things. You know, like I was raised to watch football on Saturdays and cheer yeah. for a specific team. So how how do you, because I feel like that from like a methodological standpoint, other than asking people about their experience, um, it's really hard to measure. How do you, how yeah. do you consider that and, and look at it? So, you know, one of the nice, I can say is total anecdotal evidence here that, you know, some of the early, like the fixed traits at birth, I can look at our two daughters and one of them is very kin altruistic. She's always been very sharing. Um, and even looking now back at like old baby videos, she's always been the twin. Cause you know, the nice about having twins, you get to look at, I was thrilled by the way, when we were having twins, I, I only do wish they were identical. Cause I really could have had some studies that I wanted to do with identical twins. My wife was relieved when they were not because, you know, she was, she was worried about the ethical implications of me doing research on our kids. But aside from that, the, um, you know, one was always very sharing and kin altruistic. The other one has always been quite coercive. Her, her natural instinct is to, um, you know, is to take, she's, she's just more coercive by nature. It doesn't mean she's not sweet, but that's her, her natural inclination. And so we saw that as early as six months uh, when they started interacting and now they're about to be four and those are still the same things. And when we watch football games, we were watching games and the one who's a little more um, altruistic, like when we take the ball, she's like, was that nice or not nice? And we're like, no, that was a good thing. Like we were supposed to take the ball. And she's like, oh, okay. And then the other one's like, yeah, hit him, hit him. Like take that ball. Oh, so we're like watching this and the thing is is Natalie and I model both sides of those like we're both very like yeah that's you know that's great we you know that's and so we're excited about the game um but just the way they approach the outcome it's it's really interesting to watch mm -hmm. um as far as measuring that you know it's I'm, I'm not doing any research with children and early learning a lot of that stuff is from taken from the literature that does look at children and adolescents and uh you know the psychology behind development uh, developmental psychology um but, you know, you, to answer your other question is, you know, you were raised in that environment and that's where you do have the validity of what Juan said about social identity and social groupings. And when you look mm -hmm. at the factors of why one becomes a sports fan, family is one of the top six reasons. Mm -hmm. um, it's, you know, and it's because that's what our family did or that's where we're from. So geography and family are, are the main reasons why we kind of get born into sports fandom and why we choose the teams that we do. So there is a validity. And again, so the personality looks at like who's going to be likely to stick around with that sort of social upbringing who's more likely to say you know this is something for me versus you know what i'll do this when i'm in town to you know for for thanksgiving but ultimately at the end of the day i want to go to a book club or i want to go i'd rather go see a movie with my friends um and then the second part of that is how we behave afterwards you know i have a feeling that uh when alabama gets to that point where we we're not expected to win national championship i imagine one of my twins will be sad about it and the other one won't care you know and that's <laughs> Okay, so Mike, what classes do you teach? And I hope uh, that that some of this work that you're doing makes it into your classes because it's so interesting. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, it's we have a blast. So I do teach. I so I'm in. I my background is in advertising, um, and so right now I'm teaching a lot of advertising classes, uh, pretend, uh, uh, mostly the creative thinking and uh, creative classes. Um, 
the about once a year though and during the summer i teach a sport media class which is kind of a general introduction to all things sport media the major underpinning for all that is I, I get them early on with understanding about these ideas of the fan identity and team constructs because that really is the key to public relations, advertising messages, endorsements, sponsorships, burging, corping, you know, uh, selective exposure. All that really does come from that first part. So the students get a good understanding of team identity. Um, and then over the years, I've started introducing that module on personalities. And that actually has become one of the ones that the students um, they talk about it in their, their evaluations or their assignments are really like, wow, this is fascinating. I had no idea that, you know, this was there. So it does find its way into a, you know, a week or two part of the class. So thinking about your, um, you had mentioned this earlier in our conversation that you had kind of, um, gravitated toward Alabama because of the work of Jennings Bryan and Dolph Silman. So I wanted to follow up and ask you the same question that we asked your lovely wife. If you have a great Jennings story that you would like to share, we're not going to compare notes or anything. I'm just <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, you know, like I said, I was living in Austin and I was, um, I was working as a multimedia designer uh, in sort of a junior art director role. And um, my thesis um Unbeknownst to me, taught Dr. Todd Chambers and Coy Callison at Texas Tech. They had submitted it to BEA. Um, I was working in the industry. They were obviously still in uh, you know, the academy. And I got a, a notification from them. They said, hey, this won a top student paper, so you need to go to BEA and present it. And I was like, all right, that's cool. Like I had, I, And again, at that point, as a master's student, you don't really learn about conferences and what these are. Um, so I heard it was in Vegas. I was like, yeah, that sounds fun to me. I'll go. Um, so I went to <laughs> Vegas, and I presented. And uh, you know, Dr. Bissell, I know you've seen the way I present, you know, my slide decks are usually, um, you know, yep. seizure inducing. I have like a hundred slides <laughs> and maybe a five minute presentation, um, yeah. you know, that they're very just go, 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 go. Um, the, I did this at BEA and of course it was not typical of what you see at a, you know, normal conference presentation. So afterwards, uh, Dr. Bryant came up and he said, hey, that was, and, you know, and then his daughter was there and they said, that was one, uh, Allison, who uh, was fantastic to me as well. And they said, you know, that was one of the best presentations we've seen. We really enjoyed it. And I was like, oh, thank you. And he said, well, if you ever want to come to Alabama to get your PhD, let me know. And um, I said, yeah, that sounds great. Uh, the little side story that sites noted this, and I don't know if Natalie told you this, but I had gone to a psychic previously <laughs> it was like with some friends. <laughs> <laughs> and when I met with the psychic, um, she had said, and again, it's not because I was like seeking guidance. It was just like a joke with our friends. Um, and she said, you will, you're about to go on a trip and meet a man who will uh, change the fate of your career and your future. And because of that, you'll meet your future wife and you'll have two kids. Oh, and wow. I'm not joking. Um, and I was like, whatever, this is all hogwash. And then she said, you recently had lost uh, a family member. And. Uh, he was 90, late 90s, and about two months before that, my great-grandfather passed away, and he was 97. So I was like, oh, wait, this is kind of eerie. So not <laughs> buying too much into, you know, all the good guessing game. But uh, I went to, you know, uh, see Dr. Bryant there. Um, the economy, if you remember around that time, it was so kind of shaky. The advertising, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, people were getting traded in and out of jobs. There was a lot of volatility in the market. And I decided I wanted something a little more um, – you know, that I could kind of focus on. I felt like it was a good opportunity. So I called Dr. Jennings and uh, Dr. Ryan and I asked if that offer was still good. And he was like, yeah, you know, get your, your application and your test scores and 
the rest was history. And so I got there and it kind of seemed funny that it was that meeting at Las Vegas that really did set my career and it pulled me out of the advertising industry into the academy. Uh, and that's where, of course, where I met uh, Natalie. That's awesome. We so, heard a lot of that story. We just didn't hear the psychic piece didn't. of it. <laughs> yeah, so there was definitely a psychic medium that, you know, and so you always think about it, like, am I doing this because the psychic said we had to do it? Or is this, you know, is, mm-hmm. is, it, is it a self-fulfilling prophecy? But yeah. I'm happy the way everything's worked out, so I wouldn't change a thing. <laughs> so when you consider your professional career so far, um, what are you most proud of? Um. Honestly, I can say it's teaching. And I know, I think pre-tenure, it would have been, you know, research. But I think now um, I've been, you know, out of the, uh, I've been teaching now for eight years. Um, And I think it's looking at a lot of student success. I'm fortunate to be at a university. You know, we don't have a doctoral program at Texas State, um, but we have a student body, our undergrads. They're some of the hardest working uh, and modest and humble students. A lot of them are first generation college kids. Um, a lot of them are bilingual students. A lot of them have never navigated, you know, the college experience or the job market or even know how to write a resume. And, you know, our time at uh, the last five years at Texas State, we've really been able to see a lot of student success. Uh, one of the most recognized efforts is what we did with the National Student Advertising Competition Team, NSAC. Um, I've been the advisor there for a number, about three years now. Uh, two years ago, we advised a team uh, that took second in the nation. Um, and we've had a district championship and we placed second last year. So we've had a lot of success there, which in turn is turning into student success. Um, and so I think what makes me really proud of is the difference that when they're getting jobs and you get, you get those emails back from the students that say, thank you, you know, because of this experience that helped me get a job. And I think the reason I'm so proud of that experience is when I was at DePaul, that was my first job out of college in 2013. I actually had one member on the committee vote not to renew my contract my first year because my teaching was so bad um, wow. and I really had imposter syndrome I thought what did I get myself into like maybe I have no business being a teacher and you know I took a lot of I, I found mentors I took classes I worked with people to improve that so you know is overcoming sort of that that mental hurdle of someone saying you're teaching so bad we don't want you coming back to to your you know your job to then you know last year in comparison um, I was honored. I got the Presidential Teaching Award and uh, Presidential Excellence in Teaching Award, which is the highest award that you can get at our university uh, this last year in teaching. And to be named that in a year where so many of my colleagues pour their heart into teaching because the Van Dyck was, was really humbling. So it's been quite a journey for me on that, that teaching path. And that's really what I'm proud of. Well, congratulations. Yes, huge congratulations. Um, you know, I see my the time with you has just flown this morning. We are already at our rapid fire finish, which is hard to believe. Um, <laughs> but I'm going to give you the rapid fire finish question that we've asked all of our podcast guests. What academic conference or conferences are you looking forward to attending in the future when we return to in person conferences? I am looking forward to getting back to ICA, and we will be yes! at we will be in Paris in the spring. Uh, how more, you know? And so that's gonna be next year. I'm really excited. Um, the call for papers is due November third, or the the application to get your deadline to get your papers in is November third. So you know, get them in, and uh, yeah, get looking forward to that first face face back in Paris at ICA. And we'll all meet up in Paris because that's what all the podcast guests have said. <laughs> well, great. Well, Yes. That'll be awesome. We'll have to celebrate. Yes. Mike, this has been so much fun. Thank you for taking the time in your day to join us. Um, it was really great catching up. Absolutely. Thank you all. And I love what you guys are doing. And thank you so much.
Thanks, Mike. All right. Bye-bye.